Support for this podcast comes from you. And Biogen, committed to transforming the treatment of neurological disease. Biogen is working to develop life-changing therapies for people with multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, ALS, and spinal muscular atrophy. Biogen.com science. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There's not a lot that the right and the left had in common during the 2016 election. But one thing that was swirling around on both sides was the idea that something bigger was going on than just a normal election. Some people thought, and this was making the rounds even if you did not hear it, that electing Hillary Clinton would mean the country would be under martial law. Other people thought that Donald Trump's election was the beginning of a fascist takeover. You had people who thought the Democrats were rallying millions of ineligible people to vote. And people who thought that Trump was no more than a puppet of the Russian government. Now, you could look at it that we've got a country of crazy conspiracy theorists, or you could look at it that somewhere in there, there is a kernel of truth. And these sorts of theories are not unique to the election. A third of Americans think that climate change is a scientific conspiracy. A similar number think that FDR knew about Pearl Harbor in advance. And just shy of that, about three in 10 Americans believe that vaccines can cause autism. Rob Brotherton is a psychologist and the author of Suspicious Minds, Why We Believe Conspiracy Theories. He says these theories have a special resonance with us. Vaccines, for example, have had conspiracy theories attached to them going all the way back to the smallpox vaccine. The rumor there was that uh, taking the vaccine may make you grow horns and start behaving like a cow because the vaccine was derived from cows. Brotherton says even after years of studying conspiracy theories, It's still amazing to him how many people believe in them and how much these theories shape our lives. It comes as a surprise because we have this stereotype of conspiracy theorists as, you know, this weird fringe of people, a handful of people who live in basements and wear tinfoil hats and have strange ideas and make strange posts in capital letters on internet forums. That's really not the case. There are a few of those people. But when you think about a conspiracy theorist, you should think of just your friends, your family, people you see on the street. Basically, everybody is potentially a conspiracy theorist. You mentioned some of the surveys and polls. And I should say it depends exactly who is asked and when they're asked and how the question is asked. But there are many examples of conspiracy theories that are surprisingly widespread. So what are kind of the essential qualities, if you had to boil it down to a conspiracy theory, to like what it is? So there are different qualities we could look at. One quality has to do with the the assumptions that these claims are based on. One important assumption is that nothing is as it seems, that there is always something more going on. There's something we're not being told. And so conspiracy theories, they'll say, like even if some conspiracy has come to light, has been proven, the conspiracy theory will will move the goalposts. And they'll say, well, of course we know about that. But what's really going on here? What aren't hmm. we being told? Hmm. That's one feature to do with the the assumptions that you base your worldview on. Uh, another characteristic would have to do with the conspirators, the alleged conspirators. So for one thing, they're unusually sinister, unusually evil. But for another thing, they're unusually competent. They're just unusually good at what they do. Again, we know that conspiracies happen in the world. People plot and they do illegal things. But they're usually not that good at it. It's hard to get away with a conspiracy, especially an elaborate, complex conspiracy resting on a lot of things, involving a lot of people. People just aren't that good at keeping secrets. And so for a prototypical conspiracy, 
it will be saying that the conspirators are unusually good at conspiring. So as academic researchers have looked at the sort of vulnerability that we have to conspiracy theories, what is kind of the science behind how these theories get to us and sort of get, you know, into our brains? So the general psychological approach has been to to try and isolate some of the biases that we have wired into our brains and see whether they play a role in conspiracy theories. And there's some good evidence that at least some of these biases do. One of the biases that I write about in my book is called the proportionality bias. What that is, essentially, is just the idea that when something big happens in the world, we look for a proportionally big explanation. Or on the other hand, when something relatively small and mundane happens, we're satisfied with small, mundane explanations. So in the real world, there's really no better example than the assassination of JFK, this huge world-changing event coupled with a relatively small, insignificant explanation. It was a lone gunman, just this one guy got up, did this, changed the world of, changed the course of world history. That's not a satisfying explanation in terms of this proportionality bias. And so perhaps somebody comes up with a Hmm. bigger explanation involving this grand conspiracy involving, you know, other elements of the government or the mafia or the Illuminati or, you know, whoever. Right. That seems like a more intuitively fitting explanation. It's a big explanation for a big event. So that's one real-world example. Another bias that has been researched is something called the confirmation bias. And this is a great example of something that we're all doing all the time. This doesn't apply only in the context of conspiracy theories. Generally, the confirmation bias is that once we form a hunch or once we have a belief, then we seek out information that is consistent with that. When we come across information that's consistent with it, we take it on board pretty unskeptically. If we come across anything that goes against our hunch or our belief, then we subject it to much more scrutiny. And so we're just reinforcing our beliefs all the time. There was a nice study from 1995 which involved the JFK assassination. The researcher recruited participants, some of whom started believing that there was a conspiracy behind the assassination, some of whom doubted that there was a conspiracy. And the researcher presented everybody with the same bundle of information, this ambiguous packet of information. Some of it supported the conspiracy theory, some of it went against the conspiracy theory. And so what you would expect if everybody was purely rational and evaluated evidence objectively is that people would become less sure of their belief because they're being exposed to this ambiguous information. But that's not what happened. In fact, everybody just became more extreme in their initial belief. The people Mm. who started believing it was a conspiracy, they read the information that was consistent with that. They took it on Mm. board, information which went against it. They kind of disregarded or they said that's flawed. So they became more convinced of that. But the conspiracy skeptics, the people who disbelieved the conspiracy theory, they did exactly the same thing. They read the information that was consistent with that. They took it on board, disregarded the rest, and they became more sure of their position as well. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Rob Brotherton, the author of Suspicious Minds, Why We Believe Conspiracy Theories. Um, And to push this history back further, you say that, I mean, for thousands of years, it's not like the Internet age or something that people believe conspiracy theories in, but for thousands of years, people have believed conspiracy theories. Yeah, we can see evidence of this going way back to like ancient Athens and Rome, if you look at the speeches, political speeches from back then and plays that people were writing, conspiracy was an important theme in a lot of that. 
And we can look at examples like the Great Fire of Rome as well, I think is a wonderful example. Almost 2,000 years ago now, a fire swept through Rome, destroyed a large part of the city. And at the time, people who were thinking about this, they blamed it on the emperor, Emperor Nero. They said that he had had people start this fire, that he was celebrating while it was going on. You know, that's where the phrase fiddling while Rome burns yep. comes from, because people claimed that he was dancing and singing on the roof of the palace, watching this fire burn down his city. And again, it's surprising how similar a theory like that is to ideas about 9-11 being an inside job today. The idea that somebody in a position of power, the last person you would expect to want this thing to happen, was in fact the mastermind of it. What is interesting to me is then how, how these kinds of conspiracy theories can impact real life. And I didn't realize, for example, that like Hitler believed in conspiracy theories. Timothy McVeigh believed in conspiracy theories. A, a lot of people who have taken real action, you know, not not rumored action, but real action, you could trace some of what they believed back to conspiracy theories. Yeah, this is one of the most worrying sides of conspiracy theories is that they can influence people's behavior. They can influence people's choices, how they want to live their lives, what they want to do. And... If you accept the premise that the government is up to something awful, that they're behind some conspiracy, or not necessarily the government, but any group, if you think there's a conspiracy going on, if you genuinely believe that, then you can see why it would become your duty to do something about it. And so people like you mentioned Hitler and Timothy McVeigh and some other people, they've had these ideas about conspiracies and they saw it as their duty to stop this. Hitler is probably the best example. It's had obviously the most disastrous, destructive consequences. And most people point out that Hitler, he cast the Jewish people as like vermin, these low-down people, not worthy of being considered human, but he had a paradoxical view of Jewish people. At the same time, he saw them as this metaphysical enemy of the Aryan people because he believed that there was a worldwide Jewish conspiracy going on to enslave the rest of the world, essentially, this Jewish world conspiracy. And so he saw it as his, as his duty to put a stop to that. How, how widespread was that belief? Well, you know, in the, in the 20s and 30s when sort of leading up to his own uh, taking power and prominence? It was surprisingly, terrifyingly widespread. A lot of it was based on a document called the Protocols of Zion, which was a pamphlet. It was published around the turn of the 20th century, um, in Russia and France and didn't really get a lot of attention until in the aftermath of the First World War. And then this thing began to spread around Europe and it claimed to reveal this world Jewish conspiracy. It claimed to be the, the notes of a meeting among the elders of Zion, the elites of the Jewish conspiracy, planning world domination, essentially. And looking back at it, it's this like, tawdry little document. It's obviously a forgery. We know that now. But people at the time, they genuinely believed this. They believed this was a real thing that was happening, this Jewish conspiracy to overthrow society. And so a lot of people thought that something had to be done about it. Um, how do you possibly debunk something like that? Like, how do you sort of stop people if you see sort of where they're heading towards with that sort of information? Well, this is difficult. It's, it's hard to change somebody's mind at the best of times, even if you want to try and convince them that your favorite brand of coffee is better than their favorite brand of coffee. Right. People are kind of resistant to that, right? When it comes to conspiracy theories, it's infinitely harder 
because part of the logic of conspiracy theory is that any evidence can be taken as evidence for the conspiracy. If there's evidence that seems to be consistent with it, well, you know, that's perfect. That obviously supports the conspiracy theory. If there's no evidence at all, well, that is consistent with the conspiracy theory because it's being covered up, right? right. The conspirators are doing their job. <laughs> right. If there's right. evidence right. that goes directly against the theory, if somebody's trying to change your mind to convince you it's wrong, well, of course, they're working for the conspiracy or mm -hmm. they've been duped by the conspiracy. And so anything can be taken as evidence for the conspiracy, which makes it very difficult to persuade anybody who really believes it that it might not be true. So I'm going to take the other side of this for a minute. If someone had said to average Americans in 1970, you know, I believe President Nixon and his administration are going to bug a whole bunch of his enemies, uh, hire people to break into the Democratic National Committee, use federal agencies to essentially spy on his enemies, a lot of people would have thought, that person's a conspiracy theorist. But in fact, that person would have been right. Uh, so how do you debunk conspiracies if like once in a while, something like Watergate comes along that makes people think, see, I've been telling you this kind of stuff can happen uh, and it can happen. Well, this is an extremely important point is that we don't want to just dismiss any claim of conspiracy on the face of it just because it claims conspiracy. Because we know conspiracies happen in the world and Watergate is a perfect example of a conspiracy that extended to the highest levels of the United States government, even involving the president in some capacity. As you say, before there was compelling, conclusive evidence of this, it would have sounded like a conspiracy theory. And there were people, uh, editors at the Washington Post, above Woodward and Bernstein, the journalists who uncovered this, who prior to there being really conclusive evidence, they said, this sounds like a conspiracy theory. Maybe we shouldn't run with this. We shouldn't publish it. And obviously, if they had have won and the story hadn't gone ahead, that would have been bad. We wouldn't have known about this real conspiracy that was really happening, potentially. So we don't want to dismiss every claim of conspiracy. But there is a line somewhere, or at least there's a spectrum of claims that are worth investigating, that they might turn out to be true. But then at the other end of the spectrum, there are claims that have been so thoroughly investigated and debunked already that it seems like it's not worth thinking about that anymore. So give me a sense of how um, technology and the internet affects this welling up of conspiracy theories. I feel like we have, since the election, even before the election really, um, been inundated by conspiracy theories. Here you are, you've been studying this for years. We seem to be in this time where these things are just popping up everywhere. What are you seeing? Well, it certainly seems like that, doesn't it? It seems like conspiracy theories are everywhere, much more so than before. It does. It does. But people have been saying this for a while. Like in the 1950s, 1960s, and 70s, people were saying this is a golden age of conspiracy theories. There have never been more conspiracy theories than before. So that should raise our skepticism, first of all, I think, that people are often inclined to say that we're living in, you know, the, the ultimate times for X, whether it's conspiracy theories or whatever. There, there is a little bit of data on this. There's a really clever study that was designed by political scientists at University of Miami, Joe Yusinski and Joseph Parent. They wanted to look at this question, have conspiracy theories increased over time? And they wanted to look at it over a fairly long time period, like 100 years or more. And so what they did, which I think was really clever, is they looked at letters to the editor that were published in a couple of national newspapers 
from a period from the late 1800s up until early 2000s. What they found is that it was surprisingly stable. They kind of expected to find an increase when the internet came about or, you know, in response to economic times, economic downturns. Maybe people talk about conspiracy theories more. Maybe people talk about conspiracy theories more under certain uh, government administrations, Republican or Democrat, more than others. They didn't really find evidence of any of that. It mm -hmm. was pretty much stable over this period of 100 years or more. So that should raise our skepticism even more, I think. But the answer, I think, is that we don't really know. We don't know what's happened in the last few years. We don't really have data on this and social media, Twitter, all this fake news on Facebook and things. Maybe there are more conspiracy theories around, maybe. But on the other hand, maybe there's more counter conspiracy theories around. Maybe there's more people debunking conspiracy theories as well. Maybe right. there's more information out there right. in general. Right, right, right. But the proportion of anti-conspiracy information has increased just as much as the proportion of conspiracy information. Hmm. How has this changed, like all this study that you've done about conspiracy theories and and then obviously you've looked at conspiracy theories or things people believe that were conspiracy that actually did turn out to be a conspiracy. How has this changed how you like think about information that you consume now? Uh, if anything, I've become much more sympathetic to conspiracy theories, or at least to the place that they come from. It might not sound like it because I've, I, I probably sound fairly critical of them, and I am, you know, I don't necessarily believe them, but I, I've become much more able to understand where these things come from in terms of our psychology, in terms of our fears, suspicions, doubts, the things that we all possess, that we all think about. I think it's, it's understandable why some people buy into these claims, or at the very least, why some people respond to them, whether they believe them, whether they just entertain them as a possibility, or whether they disbelieve them entirely. I think it's, it's become easy to me to see why so many people respond to these kind of claims. Rob Brotherton is the author of Suspicious Minds, Why We Believe Conspiracy Theories. He's a psychologist and a science writer. Rob, thanks for being here. It was my pleasure. Thank you. If you want to read more about conspiracy theories, we've got a list of the top 50 pop culture conspiracy theories compiled by New York Magazine. That's at our website, innovationhub.org.